Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is Dave Davidson, who's a guitarist, vocalist, and songwriter for the extreme metal band Revocation, as well as the newly formed band Gargoyle. He's a lifelong guitar student and current instructor. He's not just one of those unidimensional metal guitar players. He's a very intelligent and diverse player, offering all sorts of stylistic elements in his playing. Recently launched an instructional website for his teachings that can be found at davedavidson.com. Also, you should just know that he's released seven albums with Revocation. That's a whole lot. Anyways, I introduce you, Dave Davidson. Dave Davidson, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, man. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Yeah. How, how about yourself? Have you left your house in the past few months? Yeah, you know, I've, I've, I've gone on some, some socially distanced hangs with some friends and whatnot. Um, but, you know, I, I'm always masked up when I leave to the, you know, go to the grocery store or whatever. So you have left. Yes. I kind of haven't. Yeah, you've just <laughs> stayed put. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't blame you. Basically. I mean, pharmacy, but uh, pretty much that that's about it. Get groceries delivered. Oh, wow. And uh, stay home. Yeah. Yeah. I've, 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 I go to the store to get groceries, but uh, yeah, I always, I always mask up when I go. So right now I'm in New York. Yeah, it's actually doing way better. Yeah, compared to a lot of parts of the U.S. Why do you think that is? I think it's because, well, I mean, New York got hit like so hard and uh, you know, in, in the beginning of, of everything, and I think you know because of the population density and, and whatnot, you know, like it just sort of spread like wildfire here. And then uh, so I think people got wise to it and, and and realized like we were like like New York was the first city that I think really realized the uh, you know just just how serious magnitude yeah the magnitude of of this virus. So I think other states that maybe you know didn't get hit as hard were maybe a little bit like cavalier you know in in their approach to the whole thing, but. You know, unfortunately now, you know, a lot of those states that either opened up early or whatever are getting really ravaged by the by the virus. So hopefully the U.S. in general can just kind of all collectively Chill. get on the same page so that we can, you know, just get back to some semblance of normalcy. I think it's going to be a while. Oh, no, no, for sure. But, you know, I, I think, you know, unless there's like a clear nationwide game plan where everyone's on the same page, it's going to just take that much longer and there's going to be yeah, that absolutely. much more unnecessary suffering and death caused by this whole thing. Do you even see that happening? I'm an optimist, but uh, I have a hard time seeing people get on the same page here. Yeah, well, there's there's so much division in this country. I think we're sort of more divided than than ever, like in, in, in recent history anyway. I think, unfortunately, it, it might require some, some hard lessons learned to really get on the same page. But I mean, the thing about this pandemic is that, you know, it, it, it crosses party lines, right? So it doesn't care if you're Democrat or Republican or anything like that. You know, it's, it's going to affect who it affects. And, um, you know, it, it can obviously be very, very serious uh, depending on pre-existing conditions. And it seems like it's taking people out that, you know, are seemingly just healthy on paper. So I think in areas that are that are getting hard hit now, they're going to, you know, maybe learn that lesson that New York learned in the beginning. I hope that we don't go on for too much longer of this and we can somehow get this under control. But yeah, I, I agree that it seems like there's sort of no end in sight right now for the U.S. because the, the messaging is so all over the place between you know, the two parties, like you've got sort of one group of Americans that are, you know, really trying to take this seriously and listen to 
you know, the scientists and all that. Uh, and then I think you've got like this other group that are fortunately being misled by different, you know, viral media sources uh, that are just putting out, you know, either false, flatly false information or incredibly misleading information. And, and it's being kind of roped in with like a like a personal freedom thing as well, which I just really don't understand. So weird. Yeah, I just don't understand it because there's already a social const, uh, there's already a social contract in, in general for so many things. We have a speeding limit, you know. We have seatbelt laws, you know. You can't walk into a Seven Eleven without shoes on, you know. You, you like you, there's all these things. Also, the personal freedom thing. Even if you want to go 100% libertarian about it, the whole idea between the freedom there is as long as you're not hurting anybody else that's like uh, libertarian philosophy is all about personal freedom without doing damage to other people right i can't think of any more harm than like you know unwittingly spreading a a virus that could be potentially deadly i agree that i hope they get their shit together but i used to live in florida man and i see what's going on there and somehow i just don't see them wisening up that's just not how that place runs yeah, I've I've got some some friends that live there and some friends that from that, that are from there that are living in the northeast now that have gone back home, you know, either to visit family or or, or, or what have you and uh, yeah, some of the reports I've heard back is just like people just like don't give a fuck there and still don't give a fuck. Uh, so it's like it's disheartening, you know. Well, they think it's a conspiracy. A lot of them think it's a conspiracy. Yeah, which I just don't I don't understand <laughs> the uh, the mentality behind that. I think, yeah, there's just this this notion in, in certain circles where it's like like everything becomes a conspiracy, and it's just like no, this is just reality. Like people have been warning about pandemics for years. Like I, I've been seeing like random like memes out there, like just talking about how like no viruses. Or, you know, are real or like, you know, it's like some weird thing having to do with like the flora in your system getting out of whack, you know, just some like nonsense stuff. It's like, how are we going like back in time and like to like the dark ages where we're like unlearning all these like scientific discoveries that have really like benefited the human race? Like, I don't know. It's just it's incredibly disheartening to see like how politicized something as simple as like a public health issue has become. Well, my theory on it is that it's not that people are necessarily getting stupider or anything. What it is is that stupid people have the ability to get their dumbass opinions out there in a way that they couldn't even 20 years ago. Right. So it's not like people didn't think whacked out crazy shit 20 years ago. They just weren't able to influence every single person in their social group, all their friends from high school, their entire family and uh, workplace, and then everybody that their family knows and everybody that their friends know. Usually they could keep their dumbass ideas within you know their circle of 10 or 15 people, but now they've all got a megaphone. And so stupid ideas that are, uh, that are sticky for some reason that maybe uh, feel good to think about or might seem intelligent but aren't, uh, those kinds of things tend to just spread. And also, I've noticed that lots of people who are super into conspiracies are making up for feeling very insignificant in their lives. And it's a lot easier to think that there's something massive and uh, nefarious happening to you than to actually focus on yourself and make your 
make your own life better and improve yourself. And I think that because it's so rooted in some messed up psychology that it's probably not going to go away unless social media goes away and it's not going away. So I think we've got a, we've got a pretty serious issue actually. And if it's not the pandemic, it's going to be something else, but because we've been seeing that for years and years that just dumb people have the microphone and influence everybody basically. Yeah. There's, there's some of that for sure. Um, and, and I think, you know, information can be, you know, weaponized now. It can be like, you know, someone who's really misinformed who have some like whacked out ideas and you get enough of those people together. And it seems like there, you know, there's strength in numbers or whatever, even if it's like a crazy idea and, the, and people can like kind the of, earth being flat, right? Exactly. You can kind of feed off of that and, and, and share it. And it, it turns like this sort of fringe idea into something that's like capable of going viral. And then I think you have people that are on the outskirts of that, that pay attention to those things that can use that to their own benefit and, and game. There's so many factors at, at, at play right now um, when it comes to the spread of false information. And yeah, I, I hope that uh, truth can win out at the end of the day. At least I have to believe that, you know, because otherwise it's a, it's a pretty dark road to go yeah. down especially with everything they're coming out with, like, you know, when we're talking about, like, the spread of misinformation and, like, the whole thing with, like, deep fakes and all that stuff, that's, like, I mean, that's, like, a whole nother can of worms, but um, I think it falls under the same category of what we're talking about. So uh, I think people are going to have to get, you know, with social media, unless something, like, drastically changes with social media, and I think certain social media, um, you know, conglomerates are starting to, like, flag things that are, like, blatantly false or you know blatantly misleading or whatever yep i don't think that's like a freedom of speech issue i think it's like you're you're literally like it almost like runs the line of like slander at a certain point right you know which we have like libel laws already so you can't just like spread like completely baseless false claims about uh someone or, or an organization so hopefully that kind of gets tamped down but i think it's going to be the personal responsibility of every social media user to uh, just be eternally vigilant when it comes to this thing. Um, I was actually talking with some friends the other day about this, you know, about how sort of, you know, some, some more middle-aged people and, and you know, people in, in more elderly uh, that are getting on like Facebook and stuff like that are, you know, kind of falling victims to this false information, kind of similar to how like those like email scams or those phone yep. call scams that were going around. Uh, my theory behind it and, you know, this, I don't, I don't have like, cold hard you know data to, to back up these facts but sort of it's it's my hunch that it's the first time a lot of these people are interfacing with this technology so they're just kind of like taking what they see as as truth whereas like you know i grew up in the internet age and like you know you kind of learn like right away that like the internet is there to like trick you all the time like oh click this link for you know you know whatever and like you end up getting like rick rolled right you know so like there, there's there's always that like element of like okay i have to be like vigilant with like the internet because like there's people that are out there like just to troll you and like just to get like a rise out of you like people whose like whole days are revolved around just like i don't know just being a dick you know so like i think being on the internet <laughs> like true. being on the internet like from from like an early age like you you like sort of realize that like okay it's like this information super highway and there's like a lot of access to truth out there but there's also just a lot of access to bullshit there's access to everything access to everything right good and bad i think so a lot of people that are just getting into it now yeah like they they don't have that like bullshit meter so like you know they see a meme that's being shared 
and like it's like oh it's like text on an image this has to be true right whereas it's like no someone just made that and like is spreading it around and you're sharing it in some you know weird facebook group and like no one's like doing the due diligence to like actually like fact check that you know similar to like you know how like mainstream you know media organizations you know put out basis claims and sort of like prey on a certain mentality. So like I said, I don't have like the cold hard facts to back that up, but I feel like the younger generation, I mean, even a generation before mine are like even less susceptible, you know, to, to those types of like viral, you know, misinformation memes that can kind of get, um, can get spread very quickly. So I don't know exactly what that is, but my guess would be it's just because they haven't like older people haven't interfaced with this technology for as long. I do think you're right. I think it's basically 50 and up is where it starts to get weird. I have had to educate my parents a little bit about this stuff and they're not dumb at all. My parents right. are smart people, but uh, they just, I had to teach them how the internet works. Right. Also something that I've noticed happening, I actually started noticing this around 2015. It's people that I know who are intelligent would post fake shit like they would post like a picture of something terrible happening like say some atrocity somewhere in the world and would say this and this is such an atrocity it's terrible that this is happening these are the bad guys or whatever and i'd look at the picture and then google match it and then it's from the wrong conflict completely right. it's not even correct so i'd say that's not real you're just making that up. And their answer would be, yeah, but things like that happen. Have, you know how many times I've heard that from people? Right. It's interesting how these elements of like the, like the human psyche like have been around for like thousands of years, right? And we're just seeing like a new incarnation of it now with, with social media, right? So yeah, it's, uh, you'd like to think that with the access to the information everyone has, like everyone would be you know, getting smarter and, and, and be better at spotting these types of things. But there, I guess there's just that, like, that lizard brain, like those things that are like in the primordial part of the, of the brain that, uh, you know, we, we, we can't turn off or it, it's, it, it's so like kind of baked into the cake of our minds that like really have to kind of remain vigilant to, to fight against that and to just, you know, make sure that we can always search for truth. There's like two things at play. One is the people who have created this technology obviously are pretty evolved, but that's a tiny, 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 tiny minority of people who are capable of creating this technology that the rest of the world uses. So it's created by the smartest of the smart, but it's for everybody. So I think that a lot of people who probably aren't evolved enough to use it are using it. And then also technology has evolved faster than our brains have. So I actually think that we just, we're not designed to handle information at the level that we're getting it at, not yet at least. And so part of this is just people not knowing how to process the the sheer tsunami of data that they're getting. Right. Oh yeah. I, I think that's certainly the case. You know, it's that like that bell curve, right? I mean, we see like how technology is exploding I mean, it's just like exponential growth at this point. So how do we interface with that in a way that we maintain our our humanity and, and our morality when technology is like 
off and running and like, you know, Pandora's box has already been open and we, we, we can't go back now. Right. So we're just kind of all I've been I've, I've heard it been said that we're we're all participating in a sort of social science experiment that no one really signed up for and that no one really knows how it's all going to shake out. At the end of the day, I mean, MySpace, Facebook, those are all Friendster. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all these things like they weren't around when I was a kid, you know, like they they kind of like appeared like sort of when I was in like high school, college age. And like ever since then, it's just been getting, you know, we've been going further and further down the technological rabbit hole. So we'll see what happens when we come out the other side, like where humanity will be at. I mean, so we're talking about technology and the bad sides, but do you like technology? Cause I do uh, like, I love it. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm learning more about it now than I ever have. I think because of the pandemic and, you know, being in quarantine, I mean, for me, it's sort of like an adapt or die type of situation. And I think the music biz has always been like that too, to some extent. Um, so, you know, I, I embrace technology. Uh, it can be frustrating to me sometimes, especially when like, things that seemingly should work in 2020 just you have to jump through like a million hoops to uh to get them to work so it can definitely be a frustrating experience but um no i you know i i embrace it uh i think you you know you have to you have to sort of like try to react with the times as best as we all can but you know whether it's like a music making tool or an information sharing tool i mean there's just so many vast potentials um, for for technology so yeah of course i like technology and not everybody does. Well, I mean, there is a certain like soul sucking element of it, but I guess I try to focus on like the the good parts of, of technology and and you know try not to you know dwell too much on the the really terrible parts of it. So you know I look at it as like a music making tool. Can I can I like you know record music from home now? Like yeah, like that's a great thing. Like I and I was never really into like figuring out all that stuff. Like I mean, I just got Logic like. A few years ago, I was just like on like, I mean, I used to record like riffs on like tape and stuff, you know, so and like, like rewind, like go through, I had like all these like tapes of riffs when I was a kid. It's kind of like a segue into a different topic, but that's okay. On a four track or it was like this weird, it was like a tape player. I like found this like old tape player in my, like my parents basement and it had like an input jack on it with like a record button. I was just a kid. I'm like, oh, I wonder what happens if I just like plug straight in with my guitar. But that sounded great. <laughs> yeah, it was sick. I think I was just using like a metal zone or something like that. I mean, for for me, like, you know, it worked, but there was definitely no like miking up of a cabinet or going into any kind of DAW or anything. It was just like, all right, I got like a pedal I'm going to plug in. And like some of like the early, well, it wasn't quite revocation yet, but like just like my first like riffs were all on like, Tapes and actually, probably some of that stuff that was on those tapes, like made it onto Revocation Records, like or what became Revocation, like down the line. Um, in fact, I know for a fact it did. So, how old were you? Uh, when I was starting to really get into like writing metal and stuff, I was like probably around fifteen or sixteen. Okay, and when? How old were you when you started the band and start putting stuff out? Revocation formed in two thousand six, but I was playing in a band before that, like what what turned into Revocation. So I mean, yeah, I've I've been I've been doing like you know playing in a metal band since I was like fifteen or sixteen. I'm just wondering how long those riffs that you recorded into that tape deck lived before they made it to Revocation. Oh, I mean, it was like years later. You know, I think maybe I like once I started getting into like recording into a computer because like I basically went from like recording to tape 
to recording into GarageBand, and then GarageBand was my medium for like years and years, and then like I eventually upgraded to to Logic like a few years back. So those riffs were on those tapes for for long. Long ass time. And then it would be funny because like, I like to kind of like catalog my ideas, but then I like to just sort of move on. And with the tape, like it's just a pain in the ass. Like, so I think I would like kind of harvest riffs off of different tapes and like record them to a new like master tape and like throw the old tapes away. But I wonder if I have those old riff tapes like somewhere. But I, I was just, you know, trying to get good at cataloging my ideas in this like now would be considered like a really like archaic way. Um, Nowadays, like I just have all my my riffs like in a computer, and it's like super easy to like to find and scroll through. But back then, I'd be like I'd be listening through like one side of like a whole tape, and I'd be like, I know there's a riff on here somewhere that I really liked, and I you know listen to <laughs> all of side A and all of side B. I'm like, shit, it's not on this tape. It must be on this other tape. So it'd be like, yeah, you know, hours know of time just like trying to find one riff to fit into some other riff um, and then sometimes you find stuff that you totally forgot that you recorded and you're like oh that riff's actually pretty good but yeah definitely uh, a, a way more analog uh, approach so when you catalog stuff now is there uh, do you have any sort of interesting way to do it like file naming protocols and stuff like that well so my original way I would do it as I would just give riffs like names and then I like quickly realized that that wasn't necessarily the best way because like what does like heavy riff mean as opposed to you know brutal riff or whatever you know or like sometimes I would sometimes I would name things after bands that I would be kind of like listening to or like inspired by so that would give, kind of give me a better frame of reference but I, I realized for cataloging my ideas it just made so much more sense to catalog them by tempo which is what I do now so I've got my riffs 120 folder my riffs 125 folder, riffs 130, so on and so forth, and I'll just put all my ideas in there. Now, not every riff in the 150 catalog is going to go with every other riff, but there's a better chance that at least, like if I've got 10 riffs in a 150 folder, you know, I, I would say like a few of them could go together that could potentially be part of a song, and then maybe the other half could be part of a different song. So obviously you have to think about vibe and that whole thing and like the aesthetic of what you're going for in a particular song. You can't just say like, oh, these are all in the same tempo, therefore they're all going to work. Um, I've never worked like that. And I like to put tempo shifts into my music as well. So for me, it, yeah, it's, it's more about the overall like feel of a song that I'm going for. But certainly it's it's helped uh, immensely to to catalog it more via via tempo and now that i've got like multiple projects i also like kind of catalog things out like separately so there'll be like you know a revocation folder and then like a gargoyle folder or whatever so that i, I keep those ideas separate you sound like a pretty organized dude i am pretty organized i feel like i've kind of always have been decently good with organization you're just wired that way yeah i mean i've gotten better at it over the years for for me i, I like being efficient only because like like the best part of my day is when I can like make music and you know make art and stuff like that. So it's like the the quicker I can get to that result without having to like fuck around with like a whole bunch of other stuff or like chase something down or like find some folder that I put somewhere else like and it was the same way like in school too. Like I got like really good like in college and and even in high school like pretty good at like cataloging my stuff just so it was all like 
neat and organized. Um, that being said, my like desktop is like a mess right now. It's like really stre- stressing me out. So I have to like go through a little cleanup there. But I just find that it's 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 good to like catalog that stuff. And and also since I mean I've been a teacher of music for gosh like you know I mean easily fifteen years now almost almost 20 years because I think I started teaching around 16. So like organizing my teaching materials as well uh, has been like invaluable to me. So when I'm working with students, like I know where everything is and I have to like take a million years to like scroll through and find something that's all sort of at my fingertips. That reminds me of the, uh, the Jocko idea that discipline equals freedom. But I feel like organization equals freedom, especially when you're trying to do creative things for the reason you said. And like, for instance, with mixing, uh, one of the reasons that I encourage URM students to templatize as much, of, not the creative part, but as much of their mix prep as possible, like everything that's mechanical, that they would do the same way every single time, just find a way to make it as efficient and templatized and on key commands and macros and just as basically mechanical and fast as possible. So you can get to the good part because if you're spending your good hours just building sessions or finding a riff, whatever it is, hunting for stuff or setting stuff up. I mean, you only have 100% of your brain energy to use every single day, and it's a finite resource. You spend 40% of it on bullshit that you could have just automated or whatever, your creative juice is going to be 40% worse, in my opinion. I just kind of keep it in the session, so like... You know, there'll be in my riffs 150 folder, let's say, you know, I'll have like a couple different guitar tracks. I'll have sort of, I think I'll usually have like three guitar tracks, sometimes more depending on how many layers. But like if it's just like a single riff, I'll just have that going stair, you know, like, you know, up the middle. And then if I'm doing something that requires like two guitar parts, I'll have that like separate where, you know, left and right or whatever, panned hard so I can hear, like, the harmonies. But I haven't really, like, fucked around with, like, color coding or anything like that. But I'm not, I'm also not, like, doing, like, like MIDI drums to stuff or anything like that. I'm just kind of, like, recording the, the riff so it's, like, easier to, to keep track of. Once in a while, like, I'll, like, so, like if I'm doing, like, more, like, heavy-duty pre-pro for revocation, like, uh, I'll record bass on top of stuff. But for me, I just kind of, like, sort of catalog the riff get it down and then like you know I'll, I'll come back to it later when it requires more time and effort uh you know to, to, to flesh it out further or to like add like bass parts over it is that because you trust your drummer uh yeah well for me i've always been well ash is an amazing drummer and the drummer of gargoyle is also incredible james who's like the, you know just amazing up-and-coming drummer i was never like into the midi like programming drums out i think i really only did that like a handful of times. The one time I can think of that I really went into it was with when I worked with Marty Friedman because I wanted to like make sure that... You've heard of him. <laughs> yeah. Like I, w- I wanted to make sure that the riffs I was hearing, he-, he could hear them like against the backdrop of, you know, like an actual drum beat to really like feel it how I was feeling it. You know, when you're working with a dude of that caliber, like you want to put your best foot forward. Whereas with, with Revocation, I'm sort of like the, you know, the leader of that band. So... I think everyone sort of trusts me and, and, and my vision for things. But I'm just kind of more old school, like being in a you know rehearsal space with a drummer and like jamming on things. That's what I live for. And like now that our drummer is in, in Canada, like we'll get on Skype and I'll like I'll kind of talk drums at him. Like, 
he's actually said, and other people have said that like I, I, I speak drums well, or I can't play drums at all, but like I can like I can basically like beatbox like what I'm hearing, and like to me that just feels more organic. It feels more like in the room with another person, and it just is more exciting to me than like sitting down and like programming out like every little like hit and fill like I kind of like to leave that to the artist to the artist of the drummer like for like you know to bring out their creative element but I can certainly like sing like a thrash beat or like a halftime beat like to a drummer and they can like know what is the kick and what's the snare you know what I mean and then from there like I can also like articulate what I want if it's something very specific with like a part of a beat that I want them to come in on, like some like a lot of revocation riffs come in on like weird parts of the beat, weird upbeats, how I'm feeling stuff. There was um, a riff on Great Is Our Sin, like the intro to Theater of Horror, that riff like, two, three, it comes in on the four, right? And I think he was hearing it on beat one. I'm like, no, no, it's one, two, three, ba da da da. So like you can kind of feel it in this, and you can feel anything in different ways. So, um, but I can at least articulate you know, how I'm feeling a certain riff, whether it's coming in on the upbeat or the downbeat or even, you know, minutia of like, no, that should be a triplet pattern on the kick instead of a 16th note pattern because that's what I'm doing. So um, my music training over the years has, you know, allowed me to get my ideas across in a verbal way that I, I, I find to be quite effective. And like I said, it's a little bit more fun for me uh, and kind of can allow the drummer to, to take those general ideas and then, you know, put them into practice and, and add their own flair on top of that. So when you're writing, do you see the end vision in mind for the song or are you kind of leaving that up to what might happen? I usually see the end, you know, right. Like, like, like put it this way, like I'll, I'll send out riffs here and there, like if I'm particularly excited, but like I've gotten more into like trying to write like full songs, but like, I don't know, like, if, if I'm in the minority here when, term, when it comes to, like, guitar player songwriters, but, like, I mean, I can hear the drum beat and, like, several different possibilities for drum beats, like, in my mind, like, instantaneously. Like, I don't need, like, you know, like, I've, I've heard from, diff like, from working with different drummers, it's like, oh, yeah, like, you know, like, the guitar player in a different band that I work with, like, you know, they would have the riff, but, like, they would have, like, virtually, like, no input, like, in envisioning like what style of beat would go over it. So like if I've got a riff, I can think about it as, you know, a thrash beat or what it would sound like with blast beats or what it would sound like with two and four in the snare or just on beat three or like other weird sort of subdivisions. And I have actually gotten like pretty in depth with like minutia of like drum fills if it's something very specific. So like the intro to that which consumes all things, for example, it's sort of like this open chordal section with the guitar and you know what really makes that riff for me is like the drum part. It's like all these really bombastic like drum fills like in between all of like the chords ringing out. And each time it goes around, if you listen to the song, like like the, like the drum, like there's more and more of a drum fill. So it just kind of first starts off pretty much like empty. And then like every repetition, the drum fill kind of gets more intense and, and, and kind of keeps moving over so that it fills out more and more of the space. So I'm sure I drove Ash like insane, like mouthing all these like crazy like drum fills to him. I'd be like, no, 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 you got to come in like one sixteenth note earlier, like on the end of, of two there. And then I want you to come in on like the downbeat of two, the next repetition, you know, with this and, you know, try, try the snare, try the toms. 
But like we work really well together in that fashion. I think it's like kind of fun for him as well because he's sort of we're trying different things out in the room. And again, it feels more like this jam. I could have like programmed that all out, but I don't know. I just like that that process a bit more. It feels more like old school to me, and that was like where I where I came from. So I, I definitely envision you know, the song as a whole down to like the minutia of things. But at the same time, you know, as a musician, I try to allow for the creative process to, to develop wherever. I mean, I could be in the studio and we might change a particular part. You know, like we might like chop out a certain section or like, oh, yeah, like this this repetition needs to go for, you know, for shorter or longer. So like when we're like tracking drums, luckily Ash is like really great and as is James and I can kind of throw things at them like on the fly and they can adjust. But, you know, you're in a studio, you're hearing things for the first time in a different light. So I'll be like, oh, no, put like the kick, you know, here instead of there. And like so we might go through like three or four versions of like just like a groove drum beat because I'm hearing it in different ways and kind of reacting to the, the sound of the drums in this really nice studio. So I definitely for sure like want there to be, you know, room for things to, to develop and evolve. But I would say, you know, probably 95% of it is like good to go once it's good to go. And then there's, you know, five or 10% that, you know, is subject to my, my ramblings when we're <laughs> in the studio. <laughs> I've always had like a really active imagination as a kid, so I don't know if that's the manifestation of that in my, you know, artistic life. Yeah, I, I, I've never had a problem like envisioning like whole songs, uh, you know, and, and, and putting the pieces together. I mean, I could, I've, I've got songs in, in, in my um, DAW right now that I'm working on for the next revocation that like don't have any drums, but like, and, and even if I've, you know, recorded them a while ago, I can come back to them and instantly feel every single part of it and sort of know what's coming next. And I think that allows for my flow to, to kind of develop and change. One, one thing that I've gotten better at is being open to those changes. You know, when, when you're a kid and you're writing, like everything you're doing is, is new and fresh because it's like the first time you're writing in a particular genre and you're, and, and you're like so inspired by it as a kid. So, you know, you're kind of just like throwing everything out there and it all sounds cool. And as you know, now that Revocation's put out like seven records or whatever, like we've developed a certain sound and we've, and we've explored all these different elements within that. Now for me, it's about continuing to push the boundaries of the genre, but to do it, you know, with this concrete sort of Revocation sound in mind. And you also don't want to repeat yourself. So you want to keep things, you know, heavy and progressive without you know, falling on like similar, you know, ideas that you've used in the past. So I've gotten better at, I think, like letting go of ideas. Like it's sort of like this double-edged process where like I'll record stuff and I'll get it, you know, set in stone, like in my mind. But at the same time, I'm perfectly able to like pivot out any riff at any given moment if I just wake up one morning and listen to a song I've been working on and go like, no, that riff sucks. You know, like I, I got, I was just like so into it last week, and now I'm like, no, it needs something else. And sometimes it, it requires like multiple listens. So I've, I, with with the past few Revocation records, like they've had just more revisions than I've ever done before because I think I'm I'm, I'm searching for a particular sound and I'm more willing to like hone it in and 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 really like like nothing's ever set in stone until like you're sending it off to the 
the plant to get pressed on the on the record. And by that point, we've exhausted like every single option that I'm like completely satisfied with with the result. That reminds me of that Pantera story of a uh, dime bag recording solos during mastering. <laughs> That's great. I I forget which album that was on, but maybe on Far Beyond Driven or something. But from what I understand, there were some solos that he just wasn't cool with or that didn't exist, something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, during mastering, he just did them. Well, yes, yeah, sometimes you're hearing things back and it's like, I, I mean, actually on the on the new Gargoyle record that's coming out, I, I basically did just that. Like we had a song and it wasn't quite at the mastering stage yet, but it was like pretty close. And I'm like, man, I'm hearing a solo on this part where there was no solo before. And I'm like, I got to track a solo over this part. And I'm like so happy that I did. And, you know, when you're working with a, with an engineer and someone who's mixing it, it's like, you know, they're super passionate about the project, but you know, they also have deadlines too. And like other shit that they need to, to work on. And, you know, they're, no one's going to be ever as passionate. Yeah, exactly. No one's going to be ever as passionate about something as you are, right. The person that's like, you know, really invested in, in the, in the writing from, from every single stage. But yeah, when I sent him like these, and I actually a- added in some other more like atmospheric elements to this other song too. And when I sent him over, he was like, yep, this needed that. I'm, I'm not even mad about it. Like this, this is, this made this better. So, you know, at a certain point you have to say like, okay, it's, it's done. It's done. But up until that point, there's always room for change. When you said that your band members pretty much trust your vision, how did you get it to that point i think that that's i think honestly most bands that stick around usually have one or two people who control the vision and then people who have other roles who work with that and uh it's a good symbiotic relationship every once in a while you get the democracy but i think that rarely rarely works but i've seen lots of bands pull each other apart because a lot of people just were not cool with the visionary dude being the visionary dude so i'm wondering how do you make it work you know there's been lineup changes over the years and stuff like that and like you know sometimes like you work with people and it totally you know click and, and you all gel i mean sometimes you just get lucky you know and then other times it's like it's a work in progress i mean I, i've been lucky with this latest incarnation of revocation you know for for quite some time everyone is on the same page about like what they're roles are and and they're and they're happy with those roles and they also have other projects that they can do that you know allow them to fill in the gaps fill in the gaps exactly and that was always my philosophy is if you want to run a project so bad start your own there's that yeah i mean like i i I try to keep it as democratic as possible and you know like a, a good idea is a good idea you know and if something comes in like the current incarnation of the band we actually we're going to be getting a touring guitar player at, at some point for revocation. But right now I'm just like not thinking about that because, because Dan left recently um, to pursue other projects and whatnot. But you know, like Brett, like he's very comfortable with his role in the band, you know, and he, like he's the bass player. He's open to my input on bass parts. He, he doesn't get attached to anything. Uh, there's no ego there. He's Brett's an, a, a fantastic bass player, a fantastic performer. But like you know, he'll defer to me on certain parts. If he's like, he'll be like, you know, straight up like, what what do you want me to 
play here. And then on other parts, he'll be like, hey, I came up with this like cool tapping part that like I wasn't hearing over it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's like amazing. We got to put that in there. So I, I believe in a lot in like, you know, praising people for like, you know, the hard work and effort that they put in, but also, you know, not mincing words when it comes to a vision, because like at the end of the day, like everyone in a band, like the, the, the goal should be the final product of the music, right? So everyone's goal should be like, how can we collectively make the best music possible? And, you know, sometimes you get a band where people want to throw their hat in the ring just to sort of say that they did, right? And it doesn't make the song better overall. I've said this before too. Uh, I really strongly believe this. If you write all the time, you're not going to get so precious about losing half your riffs or something or having your stuff cut out. But if you write four riffs a year or one song a year and half of that gets cut, right. that's going to mean a lot more to you. Right. Yeah. Much more of a blow. So yeah. So like, you know, Brett's, um, you know, really comfortable in his role in the band. And he also takes care of like the business stuff, which, and like, he comes from like different backgrounds with like restaurant management and this and that. So like, that's just like kind of how his, brain is wired like I, I swear he gets like a sick satisfaction out of like making spreadsheets and shit like that you know it's just something that like I don't have and he's really great at it so like he can take care of like a lot of like the like the numbers and the business side of the stuff like we always kind of joke like he's more of the back end I'm more of the front end guy like you need both I'll have a lot of the conversations with management like I take on that role in the band I take that role very seriously and then Ash is uh, a fantastic drummer, super creative, but it's the same thing. You know, he knew he was coming into an already established band and, you know, I'm going to let his personality shine. But if he comes up with a drum beat that, you know, just wasn't what I was envisioning, I'm not just going to say like, oh, well, you know, you're the drummer, like you're going to know better than me, like automatically, like that might not always be the case because like, and, and that drum beat might be great that he came up with. It's just not what like I'm envisioning, like, how I'm feeling a particular rhythmic feel over something, right? Like he might be hearing something as a halftime beat and I'm like, no, no, that's a thrash beat or whatever. It, it's it's rare, but my, my point is he's he's such a great musician and he's worked with so many different people that he is, you know, really open to that creative process and I never get any like pushback from him at all, which is so great. We, we, we have such an awesome working relationship. And then again, at the same time, He's come on with stuff that has just like totally floored me, totally wowed me, um, where his artistic voice is coming through, his creativity is coming through, and I'm like, oh hell yeah, like this is what we're, this is what that part needed right there. So yep. you know, it's it's that collective, and and I think knowing that 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 I think that trust comes from knowing that I have the the best intentions of the song at heart at the end of the day, that's what breeds that trust. It's not like our, our shit's not going to like be like radio rock, like top four. You know what I mean? I'm not like writing these songs <laughs> because I want like credit on something, you know, it's not that it's just, I, I, I have a clear vision when it comes to these songs and you know, I, I want the, I want the music, the album to be as a whole, to be as cohesive and consistent uh, as possible with that, with that vision. And, I've just been lucky, I guess, that we've we've been able to like, you know, link up and, and and match up so well. And it's and it's really similar with with Gargoyle as well. Like in that band, it's a little bit different because because Luke is, um, I, I mean, he's like 
equally, if not more so, a creative force in, in Gargoyle, you know, because he writes all the, the, the lyrics and vocal melodies as well. Um, whereas, like, I'm handling that role in, in Revocation, like, entirely. So, like, I, I, like, he does that. And then the music, we basically write, like, 50-50, like, riffs and stuff. But we both share the same vision, you know, like, for, for what we want. And, like, he's such an incredible musician, Anyone that cares so much can sometimes second guess themselves. So like he'll hit me with something that's like amazing. And he's like, is this, what do you think? Is this good? I'm like, dude, that's, that's track one. Like, that's like, um, you know, like this is incredible. So, uh, you know, you kind of feed off that creative energy. And I, I think you can have multiple collaborators as long as everyone's on the same page and you try to like, just like kill the ego when it comes to like songwriting, you're going to get a good result. I remember when Ryan Knight joined Black Dahlia. Black Dahlia, from what I understand, used to be something where Brian tracked everything. But then Ryan started writing. They let him write. And, of course, he started tracking his own songs. Uh, I, that's just such a smart way to do it, in my opinion. As long as both guitar players rule. that's uh, Right, right, right. For sure. And, and, and Dan's an amazing guitar player. So there was no... Uh, I had no qualms with having him do that as far as, like, oh, the quality's going to suffer or whatever. I mean, Dan's a killer player, so... And I think it, it allows people to, to feel like that they're, you know, it, it has that more democratic feeling, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, like, I'm, I'm a part of this band. I'm not like, like a hired gun or whatever, right? Like, you know, this is my band as well. And like, this is my song. And like, here's my, my riffs, my playing on the record. It's going to give a different personality to it. It kind of gets back to what I was talking about earlier with like, at the end of the day, you know, you want the record to be as, you know, as good as it possibly can be. And if there's you know, natural diversity on it because someone else was, you know, wrote a song that's not sort of the main songwriter, right? Like, that's great. That's going to add like a different element to that, like album as a whole, you know, it's going to break it up in a different way. So I think it's great. And, um, you know, and, but there's, there's some people I'm sure that are out there that like want more of like, maybe like an old school death metal feel, they don't, they don't, they're not maybe looking for like a certain level of precision, uh, certainly like gross old school death metal is like really making a comeback. You know, maybe two different guitar players tracking the same riff is what you want. But you know, with the gross old school death metal back in their day, they thought that they were doing the most precise thing ever. So if you talk to people from like the early nineties and stuff, they didn't realize it was gross. I think that they, they were trying to be as cutting edge tight as possible. Right, right. I I understand that. I guess my point is like you know, there's always going to be different philosophies, different schools yep. of thought, uh, and in the in in the pursuit of, of 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 making music or you know any sort of art in general, like you know, I, I think it's good to have different mentalities because it's it's just going to create like a diverse you know, field of music to, to check out. So speaking of guitar playing, just out of curiosity, do you still practice technical stuff? Oh yeah, for sure. Never stopped. No, I mean, I, I guess maybe what I practice is different now. I try to keep sort of improvisation at the forefront of, of what I'm doing. So uh, if I'm practicing something, you know, it might be over like changes or whatever um or maybe it's like learning someone else's solo you know because then then you're you're getting like if i'm working on like a jazz solo let's say i'm working on like i, I don't know like west montgomery solo or something right like there's like a i mean that's just like there's so much meat there to like you know dig into like in, in terms of his phrasing and 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 his tone and, and his, his 
technical ability. So like I can get like, you know, 10 different technical exercises or elements out of like working on a solo like that or like you know maybe it's not even a guitar solo it might be like maybe i'm working on like a sonny rollins solo right who was a you know famous jazz saxophone player uh that by virtue of me not playing lines that were meant for guitar you know that's going to be like a technical exercise in itself or maybe i'm working on like you know a classical pick studies for guitar like etude book and and, and working on some kind of like you know bach sonata or something like that there's tons of technique in there but it's done in a really you know super musical way obviously so i'm not necessarily like just trying to like burn three note per string scale patterns anymore like i might do like a little bit of that as a warm-up but i I guess i try to keep my my technical studies nowadays like within the context of music yeah within the context of music like i took a couple lessons uh, with this really brilliant jazz guitar player Adam Rogers and you know he he talks about like anything you practice like try to have the same amount of reverence for what you're practicing as if you were to like performing Bach at like a concert hall or something like that like try Mm -hmm. to make the guitar sound and and I and I think that sort of gets lost on people sometimes you know when we're just kind of you know going through the motions of of practicing technique because in doing that does you know you might be only looking for speed but you're you're lacking in like tone or this or that or you're like just like yeah so on the quest for you know you know playing 16th notes at a specific tempo that like other parts of your playing fall by the wayside so so yeah trying to like use your practice time as like this like sacred like meditative process that like you're really working on your overall musicality and trying to get yourself something as good as you possibly can and not just like okay yeah I can play like you know burn through this thing but like does it does it sound good you know are you just practicing the same three note pattern scale over and over again and like and for what you know so all your lines are going to sound the same when you go to like play a solo cuz you've just like overly drilled that one thing man you're bringing back memories <laughs> this reminds me of when I was at Berkeley living in the dorms, in the dorms on every single floor, there were practice rooms. So you, you weren't allowed to practice in, in your room because of the noise. You had to go to those rooms. And uh, remember these guitar players that would be there literally 10, 12 hours a day. And they're always practicing the same thing. Three note per string, scale runs and sweeps and just trying to get as fast as humanly possible. But without fail they always sounded like shit and they never they were never in good bands eventually most of them hurt themselves and quit but like while they were playing they never sounded that good and there were these other dudes who they did that too but maybe not as much but the rest of the time they're focused on learning music writing stuff developing tones and maybe they didn't play 20 percent as fast as these other dudes, but everything they played sounded fucking great. And those were the dudes who I knew who ended up dropping out and joining real bands and stuff. Like we were just talking to Gus G the other day uh, on this. And he was one of those guys, even though he is fast as fuck, I knew dudes that were faster and, but he was still better than all of them. Another one was James Malone from Arsis who he, uh, incredible, incredible tone, incredible technique, but not, the fastest ever, but good enough, but still just musical genius. It was, I think that these dudes who tried to make it an Olympic thing really, really ended up 
screwing themselves over because literally everything they would play when they tried to play within the context of a song sounded like those three note per string exercises that they were drilling 10 hours a day with the worst tone you've ever heard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was a bummer. <laughs> don't be like that. No, don't be like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, you know, the guitar is not something to be conquered, you know? It's 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 something to grow with, you know, try to produce music with for the rest of your of your life. So yeah, if you're if you're treating it like this competition, like this sport, like oh, I got to be faster than the next guy, I think you're I mean, you're really missing out on like what the point of of music is, you know? And and um you know, I, I think I, I was lucky to be exposed to lots of different types of music. Um, you know, I went to an arts high school and, you know, studied. That was like my first introduction to jazz. So realizing like kind of early on, like guitar doesn't have to be this like, you know, rat race of speed. Um, I think like a great modern example of that would be Julian Lodge. I don't know if you guys are, know him, but um, he's uh, an incredible jazz guitar player or at least you know he's sort of started as jazz and now he's just got all these different elements but he can like just burn over changes and it's just like insane technical prowess and then he can play like a ballad and it's like you know on like an old telecaster and it's like just as beautiful it has like this like bill frizzell mm -hmm. kind of like quality Real guitar player yeah you know and it's just and, it, and it's just incredible and you realize like wow this is a guy who's like so in tune with music and, and and he can do he can do fast technical stuff like you wouldn't believe but he's got an amazing tone and vibrato and like when he's playing something slow you're like spellbound listening to it because it's just like so beautiful so what you work on you know, in all those hours of practicing, just make sure that you're not like myopically focused on this like one kind of frivolous goal of like being the fastest guitar player out there. Because there's always going to be someone who's going to be faster than you. There's always going to be that person that's put the extra hour in shredding the harmonic minor scale somewhere. But like, are they making music that is is moving in any real way? Music that like you want to listen to, or is it just like speed for the sake of of speed. Do you know who Badi Assad is? No. She's like a Brazilian jazz guitarist, singer, oh. songwriter, but she's fucking awesome yeah. at guitar. And I remember, I believe I'm going to paraphrase a quote. She was asked about technique and she said that something along the lines of technique are the wings on which my music flies, something like that. Basically saying, the technique is just a means to an end that's yeah she developed it but it's not because of technique for the sake of the technique it's to facilitate the music and that's all that's all it is uh damon grain uh do you know him from voivod martyr yes okay he said something similar. he's one of my favorite guitar players um period but you know you know specifically in the metal genre and you know I, I, he first came on my radar with with his band martyr who was you know they're they're technical death metal to, to a T, but they were so musical. Um, and I haven't really heard a band that's, you know, quite like as musical in, in the same way. Like for, for me, like Dan's like the Stravinsky of death metal. Like he just writes like the wildest shit. And, you know, interesting way to put it. I always thought Meshuggah was the Stravinsky of metal. 
Uh, well, maybe the, the you know the in, in terms of right of right of spring, yeah, yeah, yes, right of spring for sure. Yeah, he just he just writes this really really wild stuff, and he's a perfect match with Voivod as well. But anyway, like I was reading an interview with him because Martyr were known as like this technical band, and technical is just sort of like this this buzzword. And you know, anyone that's like that good of a musician that thinks about music as as much as Dan does in terms of the composing, you know, he wasn't just like, oh yeah, it's you know, a shredder, blah blah blah. I mean, I've heard guys like Marty Friedman say like they hate the term shredder. You know what I mean? Because it's like it conjures up like a certain, I you know, idea that's yeah. like not you know you're not thinking about what you're doing. It's like it's more just like you know mindless or whatever, and, instead of something that's musical. So yeah. Uh, anyway, Dan said you know something to the effect of like yeah, it's like these are just sort of like the the technique is 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 one element of the sound that 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 allows us to sort of you know craft different sonic landscapes or whatever but it's not like we're not doing it for the sake of being technical it's just sort of like a byproduct of like the music that we're hearing in our heads that just naturally is more technical it's like you're you're a painter and like this is just one color in your color palette and i think you know having sections that are that are less technical you know maybe maybe harmonically they're they're more you know technical or whatever but like as far as from a uh, playing standpoint like it's not like impossible to play it gives the music dynamic you know like you can't just have a record be 45 minutes of just like you know 16th note triplets going the entire time like you're gonna get burnt out on that and well you could I, but <laughs> yeah, right right I've, well who's I've good, definitely but, heard that <laughs> but i guess my point is it's just like you know like having those having that those dynamic shifts it's going to make your your music sound like the technical parts pop that much more I mean, I use a lot of metaphors, like when I'm teaching and like, I'll say to my students, like, you know, like spaghetti and meatballs could be your favorite dish of all time, but like you eat it for breakfast, lunch and dinner every day, you know, you're going to get sick of of it like pretty quickly. So, you know, hearing 16th note triplet sweet arpeggios, you know, is certainly ear catching, right? But if that's the only thing that you're hearing, it's going to lose that wow factor. It's going to sound more like an exercise rather than like music. And and when I'm teaching, I really try to hammer that home. Like I'll be showing like, okay, here's a scale, you know, here, here it is in, in diatonic thirds, right. As you're playing through the scale. And I'm like, now you don't want to just take this idea and just keep going. And like, you know, over and over again, because it's going to sound like, it's going to sound like an exercise to the listener, but you may, you might need to practice that for hours and hours and hours. And then when it comes to the solo, you only use like a piece of it. And it's happened time and time again when we've analyzed, like when I've analyzed jazz solos with different students, I'm like, oh, check out this one part right there. He's using this like fourth motif, you know, through a scale or through through like a chord change, you know, but now they're on to the next idea after like a bar and a half or two bars because like otherwise it would be too, you know, too obvious. It would start to sound like more of an exercise rather than, you know, an improvised solo. So it, it, there's this element of drilling things that you have to work on, right? And but then hopefully you can combine it with enough other things that when you go into to, to play something for real, whether it's you know you know crafting a solo that you're going to be composed that you're trying to play note for note every night, or if you're in an improvised setting, something that's going to sound musical, um, like you're telling a story rather than like you're telling a story that someone already knows the, or you're telling a joke that someone already knows the punchline to, or you're telling like a story that they've heard like a million times. Like you want your voice to come through in, in a unique way. So the technique part is part of it, but the problem is when it's the end all be all. And I think that just separates like, you know, the real musicians from 
you know, people that are in it for, you know, for competitive reasons or for whatever other reason that, you know, they think it's cool or something. So considering how open you are and uh, passionate you are about basically music in general, where does the extreme metal come from? Well, I got into rock first, right? So, I, you know, got into like... Yeah, but yeah, but there's a wide gap between what you do and rock <laughs> yeah no no for sure i guess i just i was i was i've always been into things that were more more abrasive i guess more sort of against the status quo more fire more fire more forward thinking um it's it's interesting like i was this was like a couple of years ago or maybe a few years ago at this point i was at the guggenheim and i was going there to see an exhibit on italian futurism and the Italian Futurist Manifesto basically states that like uh, no, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but like no work can be considered a true work of art unless it has an aggressive character to it. I kind of agree. Yeah. So I just thought that was very, you know, poetic. I actually was, I was talking to somebody about this the other day uh, and I was saying that I, yes, I appreciate all genres of music and I listen to all kinds of stuff, but when making it, I don't, I actually can't relate to how someone could write a folk song because it, not that there's anything wrong with it, not that I've never heard a good one, but I just don't understand how, I just don't relate to how you can make music that doesn't have that like oomph to it. I just don't get it. For me, I, I kind of took it like the the word aggressive can kind of mean different things like it, it could just mean something something that like is con, you know can confront you and like you know certain great folk artists you know maybe it's like the lyrical content that is mm -hmm. confrontational right or maybe you know maybe it's this you know even if it's like a love song the sheer uh heartache uh you know and honesty in in the you know in the lyrics mixed with the words i'm not like a huge folk guy but i guess i'm just trying to sort of play devil's advocate for the for that phrase in general like i think you can kind of take it to mean different things but it's got to have something something in there that like is is moving that impacts you in a way that you're not just sort of like this you know this passive listener or, or viewer in the whole thing it's got to make you think and like stimulate you and, and challenge you in some way and i think that you know so I, I i agree with that sentiment anyway how i got into death metal um you know i just kind of kept craving heavier and heavier Shit, you know, like I, I went from Aerosmith to Guns N' Roses, which was, you know, a little bit of like a jump in terms of like the intensity. And then, you know, from there, I think I got into Pantera and then like, you know, this is like, you know, again, like 15, 16. And they were kind of like that gateway drug band where there were so many different, you know, artists that I found like as like offshoots from from listening to them. So like getting into you know, like, like thrash metal, Bay Area thrash and all that stuff. And, you know, Floridian death metal, uh, you know, Scandinavian melodic death metal and black metal. I was just sort of a sponge for all these things, and it and it and it seems like forever ago, and it, and, it, and it seemed like the journey took so long, but it really I think only took like a year or two for for me to like go from like you know being really like this acolyte of of, of rock music into just like a full blown like disciple of like heavy death metal like you know, weird shit. Was it like an itch basically that just, I don't know. It couldn't be scratched, needed heavier and heavier and heavier just to scratch it. I think so. I mean, who knows? You know, there was probably some element of like, you know, you know, teen angst and like aggression in there because like, you know, you're going through mm -hmm. like just such a myriad of different like emotions when you're like, you know, hormones and whatnot, when you're like 
a young kid. So like maybe that allowed me to like, you know, have this sort of cathartic release of like, I mean, there's something so palpable too. Like that's the other point is like going to like a metal show as a kid and like really feeling that energy. I mean, it's fucking undeniable. So I think like experiencing it live and, and also that there was such like an underground community there. Like I feel like there wasn't as many like rock bands like playing like basement shows. It was more this like punk rock metal thing where like we were all these just like, you know, it's dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Lurking in these weird basements and like doing warehouse shows and like all this stuff. I feel like rock was more like in like a club scene. Like you're like a little bit older and you were trying to do these like battle of the bands type things like that. And, you know, we'd be like posting up in like random like, you know, basements of people or, or, or weird abandoned warehouses and like setting up shows. And it would be like a thrash metal band and a black metal band and a death metal band. And, you know, there'd be a punk band on it. So, seeing that, that community there and like really developing a sound. So that was, that was a big part of it. Um, like having access to a scene, but yeah, it's just, it's just been my ear. Like I've just always been drawn to that. And as I started to discover like heavier and heavier bands, like that were, that were still super aggressive, but had this uh, like, like X hoarder or something like that. Like they were like one of my favorite thrash bands because you know, the, they're they're thrash through and through, but they just they almost have this like death metal level of aggression to their to their riffing that's just like it's so palpable. Um, and at the same time, like you know, discovering bands like you know Gorguts or whatever that were doing these really you know wild chords and and, and melodies, something that was like so alien sounding to me from what like I thought metal was. Whereas like with with pop and rock, you know. There's artists there that can can push the the boundaries of the genre, but like when I was listening to that stuff, I was getting that aggressive hit, you know. But but also like listening to this music that was like truly otherworldly to me, um, and I just like kept craving it ever since. I love hearing new sounds, like 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 an, like artists that you know are never satisfied with 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 the status quo, and they 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 desperately will constantly you know seek these new avenues for creativity i just always found it to be to be so inspiring sounds like you are always doing that with your own music too trying to push it thank you yeah i i that's a great compliment i appreciate that is it true though so what it sounds like yeah yeah for sure i mean I, you know i i i labor over the songs that i write i i, I want my voice to come through i, I, I want to try to just put creativity back out into the into the world of music because it's energized me so much i think that's you know my role as a as a musician i think that's anyone's role as a good musician is to you know to to be true to yourself and to and to be as creative as possible can we talk for a second about some of the actual techniques involved in getting sick at heavy music sure specifically riffs uh and your right hand what did you do or what do you do to to keep that up to par for the genre. It's weird because I, I get asked sometimes about my right hand, like, you know, whether it's students or in interviews. We got to talk about it. Yeah, I, I, I didn't really do anything, to be honest with you. Like, it's it's strange because, like, like, like the, those really fast, like, gallopy, you know, you know, whatever, like either thrash metal or death metal, like, patterns. I don't know if it was just, like, growing up playing along to records or whatever, or if it was just sort of, that in particular just came more naturally, but I, I never really like, I don't remember like sitting down and like, like really like 
working on that or getting it. I mean, I'm sure I did it like a little bit, but like it just sort of seemed like intuitive to me. Like, you know, I, I think some people like their natural inclination on guitar is like totally, you know, like unnatural sometimes. And you have to kind of like unlearn certain just like bad habits that just like certain students, like they're just the way they hold a guitar. It's like the fretboard is like repelling their hand away, you know, or like the way they hold a pick is, is, is odd or like they're, they're not like able to like palm you between different things. And, you know, it's my role as a teacher to try to like rein in those bad habits. And then you have other people that like are just, just for whatever reason, like their, their natural inclination on the instrument is, you know, like the proper technique. I mean, I watched a lot of guitar videos growing up. I mean, I remember like watching Slash play like over and over again and just, and then, you know, watching like Dimebag play over and over again. And like, I don't know if it was that visual connection with the sound and then like also playing along to it that, that, that maybe, uh, you know, allowed me to develop that technique in more of a natural way. I remember, I think I was watching some like you know, cracking the code sort of picking technique video where they're like talking about like pick slanting and stuff like that. And like, you know, they come up with all these fancy names for like how to like pick now, like properly. And like, but like any interview with any of those dudes, it's just like, yeah, I just, I never thought about this. I mean, no one had like a slow-mo camera and was like watching their picking technique. I think they just did it basically based off of feel and sound. And maybe it comes along with like being, being critical of the sound that you're, you're hearing, which kind of gets back to the making sure your practice, like you're, you're sounding as good as possible in your practice time. So like just naturally like being in tune with, you know, with, with your ear and the, and the, and the, and the technique, making sure the sound that you're getting is, is, you know, precise as possible. But yeah, like there's, there's pickers out there that are just like, you know, incredible. And then you zoom in on their hand and it's like this, it almost looks like a machine doing it. But I don't know if they ever really like thought about like, okay, my pick angle needs to be 90 degrees facing the ground and this and that. It's like all things you discover like, you know, after the fact. So when it comes to like that that right hand technique, um, it just it just never seemed to like be a hurdle for me. It just it just kind of came naturally. Is there anything that you do specifically to get ready for the studio? I see that you've worked with Zeus several times, and I know that he's uh, he, he's got some intense standards, as he should. As he should, yeah. He's a great producer, a great dude. Um, I just practice, practice, practice. I, I know I'm more hard on myself than, like, anybody. So, like, Zeus has, like, high standards, but, like, there, there were times, like, in the studio where I'm like, now nah, I rushed that part. And he'll be like, no, you didn't. I'm like, no, I, I did. And he's like, dude, I'm looking at the wave file. Like, you're, you're right on. I'm like, zoom in, dude, because I, I definitely rushed it. And he's like, all right, you're off by like 10 milliseconds. Like, what the hell is wrong with you kind of thing, you know? So like, I'm very much a stickler for my playing. So it's just like, I, I just try to grind it out as much as possible and, and, and be prepared. Almost like, you know, put yourself in the mindset where you're going to get that red light fever, you know what I mean? And like, and kind of like in, embrace that. Cause I, I find like so much of the time it, it might not be for lack of practicing, but just like you're in a different environment or like, you know, you're playing and nervous. Of, yeah. You're nervous. You know, it's just, it's just nerves. So like trying to put yourself in that mindset, like where, you know, you're, you're, you're thinking like, okay, like I'm going to fuck this up. Like, let me just go there in my head and, like, kind of breathe through it and, and get myself to a relaxed state so that, like, I can deliver what I need to deliver performance-wise. 
But yeah, no, it's just just a lot of recording. Make sure I go in as prepared as possible so that there's no uh, no questions in terms of like what I'm doing. But then even even then, like we were talking about, like leaving the door open for creativity. There's some things that like I know is gonna be a lead part, like maybe not like a full blown solo, but like you know I might have a solo mainly written, but I might leave like little sections to chance in terms of like how I'm gonna connect the dots. Like I mean, there were parts where I would try something in the studio for like even on the outer ones and I'm like nah I'm not really liking that line and like I'd be like all right give me like five ten twenty minutes or like you know we'd break for lunch and like I'd eat and I would like work out like a different pattern and be like okay now I'm gonna try let me try something different here or or maybe it's just like these little ear candy moments where I'm like oh I'm hearing like a weird whammy bar part there let me like let me just like fuck around and like see what I can come up with so I, I do like to leave the door open for creativity when I'm going into the studio but by and large you know I've, I've worked my I've practiced my ass off like to to get to a certain level that it's like going to be performable and it's the same thing with with going on tour too you know like some of these songs I mean at this point I've practiced like a revocation set and like mad long so I'd like if I were to really go back in and like if we were going to go on tour tomorrow which is obviously not going to happen like you know I'd have to really focus on like whatever the songs that we're going to do like we're not a band because like because of the the amount of technical ability that goes into these songs it's not like we've got like 30 songs that we just kind of call from and it like changes every night like we've got like a, <laughs> we've got a text thread of like all right what what's the set going to be what's the order what's the flow we pretty much stick with it maybe we'll swap out like one song here or there or like you know especially if like we combine with another tour package on tour we might need to like change something around or whatever We'll do that, but by and large, like the set is the set, and we just sort of work on getting it as as tight as possible. Usually, what my tour prep is is like two to three weeks out from a tour. Like I'll start like revisiting the set, like playing through like you know a couple songs here and there, and then trying to get it down where I'm like you know maybe playing through like the whole set, and then like with vocals, like, I have no idea like what my my voice shape is gonna be like after like not singing on tour for like over a year. So I'll have to probably build that that death metal callus back up on my vocal cords. But, you know, I'll, I'll do like, you know, a song or two one day, maybe give myself a day off, come back, do like another song or two, and then just like slowly start building. I mean, I can feel it in my voice. Like if I'm off the road for a while and like I do like death metal vocals, it's like it's I'm not getting the power that like I would have, obviously, like from being on the road for like two months. So, you know, you kind of like slowly like get back into it. And by like, you know, a weekend, it's like I feel like my voice is back to to, you know, my vocal cords, like, remold to, like, the Cookie Monster voice, and um, I can deliver what I need to deliver and, like, and have the stamina to do it. So it's it's more when I'm in the room with the rest of the guys and we're, and we're all playing together and we've got the mic set up that, like, when I'm doing death metal vocals or, or you know, or whatever kind of vocal style I'm doing with the guitar, that's, that's when that'll come back. Once in a while, if it's a particularly tricky part, like, I'll kind of like quietly sort of sing along just to make sure like the like the rhythms are working out, but I'm not like full bore practicing, you know, death metal vocals and guitar at the same time at like my apartment, you know? Yeah. So we've got some questions here from our listeners for you. Oh, cool. Yeah. I'd like to go through some of those because we've got quite a few actually. Okay. So uh, Pete McQueen is wondering or saying it would be awesome to find out more about how Dave puts chord progressions together because there's some proper jazzy stuff in Revocation. Well, thank you, Pete. A lot of it's just sort of using my ear and 
a lot of the stuff that like I've I've learned and practiced over the years, and and, and you know whether it's working on like jazz standards and this and that, and you kind of like absorb that information, and then it just kind of becomes part of your vocabulary. So like I'm not necessarily like thinking about like any particular like chord progression. It's more like I'm using like the basic principles of things that I've learned from like working on jazz stuff. So like voice leading, right? Like you could take you know, if you just play a chromatic line on the guitar, for example, it's not going to be the most compelling melody. But if you take that chromatic line and you, like, harmonize that, like, where you think about, you know, what each one of those notes could be in a particular progression, you can make some really, like, interesting, beautiful-sounding stuff. So I've done voice-leading exercises like that over the years, so that would be a good one. You know, just basic kind of, like, counterpoint. You know, you could take a scale and take two different notes like so so basically like not to get like super technical but there's like no you know, get there's like four types of counterpoint right you've got parallel motion meaning like the notes are, are moving in the same you know if, like like you know power chords moving around if i'm if that would be like parallel motion right like if i move up a whole step from like g to a with a power chord you know the the g is moving to the a and the d is moving to the to the e parallel motion then you have like similar motion where like you know the notes are both moving up and down but they're doing it with like a different interval right so let's say i slide up and my my g goes to an a but my d goes to an f right so all of a sudden the perfect fifth has turned into a minor sixth they're both moving in the same way but it's similar motion right not parallel and then you've got oblique motion where sort of one voice stays the same throughout all of it and, um, you know, another voice is moving on top. I, I particularly like oblique motion with, like, thrash middle riffing, where you're kind of doing this ostinato thing where there's, like, one repeated sort of low bass note, and then there's, like, notes on top that are kind of dancing around. Like, almost picture, like, that riff in Master of Puppets that happens after that intro of the... You know, that, that has sort of kind of that element of, like, ostinato where it's, like, I mean, there's an open E, but it's like that that F, and then there's those like that chromatic line that's happening on the A string. Um, so like that's to me is like a really cool sound to use in like thrash metal or death metal, where you're kind of keeping this this bass note and these other notes are sort of ping ponging off of that. Uh, and then you have contrary motion, so meaning lines are moving. You know, if one voice is moving up, another voice is moving down, or vice versa. So, you know, you could take like this idea of contrary motion counterpoint uh, with the scale, and like you know, you could start on, you could literally start on an octave, right? Like, I mean, picture taking a major scale, you know, with A to A, and as the the A moves to the B, that high octave A is moving down to G sharp, and then as that B moves to C sharp. Uh, you know, that G sharp moves down to F sharp, creating a perfect fourth. And you're going to get all these different, and obviously the wider spread the interval is, the more contrasting the, you know, the, the, the contrary motion counterpoint is going to be. So, you know, the different exercises like that that you can do is like sort of ear training elements. I'd like to quote Ben Maunder here really quickly, who's a fantastic avant-garde jazz guitar player, new music composer, fantastic guitarist, but he talks about he talks about how theory is just ear training, right? Like he's like the purpose of all the theory. I agree with that. Is to, is to train your ear to kind of like open open your uh, your mind up to something that like you know you wouldn't have thought possible before. Anyway, like you know with with all these technical exercises, they're really just kind of like ear training exercises to to explore different possibilities. So that was sort of a 
a long uh, answer to that question as far as the chords go, but I hope that was you know helpful. Okay, so Mitch Ford is wondering, how do you deal with pain in your hands, joints, and wrists? You know, knock on wood, I've been I've been pretty lucky with that. Uh, I haven't had any issues. I think the biggest thing is if if you, you have to listen to your body. You know, like if, if, if you're having pain, you know, take a break, walk around. Uh, you know, for me, it's almost more like of a like a like a back pain. You know, if you're sitting for a long time, so I think it's good to take breaks. I, I like to be proactive with stuff. So even though I'm not really experiencing any, any like pain at all, you know, I'm getting older, so I try to stretch. Uh, before I'm practicing now, I don't do it every day. I really should, but uh, different hand stretching warm ups and exercises like that. And then the final thing I'll say is, if you're if you're consistently feeling pain, you might want to relook at your technique because it could be something that you're unwittingly doing. You know, you might be the whole body is connected, right? So like, you know, you might be tensing up one part of your back, you know, when you're leaning over to play, you might have bad posture and that's affecting a nerve in your neck that could be affecting some other component of, of your arm. Even just like how people are picking, you know, like holding a, holding a pick, like, you know, you want to be firm, but you don't want to like crush it in your hand. And I always sort of tell people like, I mean, you know, this isn't going to be a video interview for the podcast, but like, you know, some people, I'll kind of show you guys, some people kind of like, I'm, I'm making sort of this gnarled hand motion right now when I'm holding the pick and I can instantly feel right here, like you can actually see the tendons like popping out. Now, if I let my fingers go and I hold the pick, that tension completely gets alleviated or it gets alleviated if I bring my fingers all the way in and make kind of like a loose fist, not a gripping fist, but more of a looser fist. It's that kind of in-between you know, like gnarled hand thing where your fingers are kind of like coiled around that you're going to create this tension here. So when you're picking, try, try to look at that and, 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 you know, just literally like think about like when you're holding a pick or when you're playing through a riff, are you feeling excess tension in your forearm, in your, in your elbow, in your, in your wrist? It could be something as simple as like your, your finger position of the other fingers that aren't holding the pick that could be um, affecting that. But certainly something to take seriously, Mitch, and um, you know, take breaks, listen to your body, and if, if it's something that's habitual, you, know, you might want to like, look at your technique or potentially see like, a physical therapist. Your health is, is so important when we're thinking about playing music of any kind, I and mean, we are kind of like specialized athletes in a way, so... Um, you know, if I've had students come to me saying like, oh, this or that, I'm like, all right, I'm not like, I'm not qualified to give medical advice. So if it really is something that's like concerning, like, you know, potentially like get that checked out. But as far as like, you know, maybe some quick fixes, see if that helps. But, um, I, I hope that's helpful for you. Thank you. All right. Last question. This is from Vaughn Treboulet. Can you take us through your writing process? Does an idea start with something theory-related you want to try, or does it start with you stumbling across something and expanding on it? Revocation is amazing, and I can't wait for the Gargoyle album. Oh, great. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's, it, for me, and I've said this before in different interviews, but it all starts with the riff. Like, it's, it's literally like, you know, I'll, I'll have this idea, uh, you know, I'll catalog it like I was talking about earlier with, you know, in, in these different sort of tempo files, and, and then I just sort of see what, what goes along with it. Sometimes I get lucky and I'm just like, I'm on one. Like, you know, I'll write a riff and then I'll write a riff after that and a riff after that all in one session and sort of one idea will be strong enough that will, it will lead me 
you know, to a bunch of other riffs, like, you know, I call them like cousin riffs, right? Like they're, they're kind of related, right? It's like a slightly different version of it. I think all the theory and stuff that I've studied up, I don't, I'm not really thinking about theory when I'm, when I'm playing, like you may have had a similar experience, AL, when like you left Berkeley, but you know, they're like, all right, here's all this music stuff, you know, now forget everything we taught you and just like go like play and make music, right? Man, for me, theory has always been what you said earlier. It's just like ear training. I never actually used it when writing or anything. But I did notice that a lot of people had a hard time disassociating theory from writing. I always use, I don't know, it would always help me just give names to stuff that I already heard in my head that sounded right or wrong and then help me communicate with other people or... I guess maybe flesh some things out once the idea was there, but it never, it was never theory first than writing. And actually, for some reason, I have noticed that some people have a hard time with that. that I mean, you have to hear the sound of something. You know, the, the, the theory can help sort of put things into a frame of reference, uh, especially for an, like, an, you know, analytical purposes. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I'm not necessarily sitting down and, you know, even if I wrote something that was like, you know, to a T in Phrygian dominant or whatever, right? It wasn't necessarily like, oh, I have to sit down and write something in this mode. It was just sort of like my ear was searching for a particular sound and like the notes happened to fit within that that sound. I mean, every once in a while, like if it's like a particular, you know, like pattern that I'm hearing, like, you know, just naturally I'll be like, oh, this like falls into that scale. So like it can kind of like, you know, give me an option of, of available notes, but with revocation, you know, I want to leave that wild card factor, and like, I never want to leave a note out of a riff because like, it doesn't fit into a particular scale or this or that. You know, like it's it, it's more about the the sound that I'm that I'm going for. So yeah, I don't use a ton of theory, but I think it's that subconscious thing where like I'm happy that I've learned all that because it's sort of in in the back of my mind. The one thing that I will say is that. Where the theory is particularly helpful is less in the, I know this is the riff podcast, but it's more in the solo. Uh, it's okay. It's a guitar podcast. If I'm writing a riff, you know, I might not be thinking about any kind of tonal center at all. Like the solo section for Scorched Earth Policy, for example, that goes through like a couple or a few different tonal centers. You know, I wrote it because I thought it was cool and like then thought about like, okay, what are the scales that are going to fit with this sort of after the fact? So I find it to be a useful tool when composing solos because you can kind of put different scales or maybe even multiple scales that could fit with particular chords. And then that gives you sort of a frame of reference of, of, of notes to use. But then, you know, even then, I mean, if it's one thing like jazz has taught me, it's like, you know, with chromatic passing tones and this and that, like, you know, like if you're playing a minor seven chord, the chord tones of that, there's a minor seventh interval in there. Almost always, you know, jazz musicians will play a major seven on that because it's like a leading tone. It Like it sounds stronger so technically it's wrong but it actually to my ear sounds better in certain instances because of that the harmonic sort of push like the the sort of chromatic nature of that resolution that like brings you it stronger into that chord tone um so yeah so the the theory is kind of floating around somewhere in the back but i try to just make music when i'm writing well dave i really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us it's been a pleasure hanging out. I've we kind of have run in the same circles for a long time, but never met. So it's a pleasure. I know it's crazy. Uh, re- no, really, really, the pleasure was all mine. This was a fantastic 
fantastic interview. It's it's great to have really thoughtful questions and to to go in in depth on a lot of these topics. So yeah, this is this is one of my favorite interviews I've ever done. Mm, glad to hear that. You're welcome to come back anytime. Oh wow, thank you so much, guys. I'd, I'd love to. <laughs>